once upon a time, and a very good time it was. There was a moo cow coming down along the road. And this moo cow that was coming down along the road met a nicens little boy named Baby Tuckin. This is The Book Show on RTE Radio 1. I'm John Connell, and this evening, James Joyce's A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man comes under the microscope. This coming-of-age story, first published in 1916, has been lauded as a landmark since its beginning. Strongly biographical, hugely creative, it's one of the central pieces of Joyce's work. But how relevant is Joyce and the portrait today? Well, it's about to be adapted as a play in this year's Dublin Theatre Festival. How will Stephen Dedalus translate to the 21st century? And how much has our Ireland changed? First, let's hear an introduction to Stephen Dedalus or Rough Magic Theatre's interpretation of him. Stephen Dedalus, Class of Elements, Clongo's Wood College, Salins, County Kildare, Ireland, Europe, the world, the universe. I'm Stephen Dedalus. 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 I'm Stephen and I've just started school. I'm Stephen and my favourite book is The Count of Monte Cristo. I'm Stephen Dedalus and I've just discovered the Monto. I'm Stephen and God has saved me. Stephen Dedalus, Class of Elements, Clongo's Wood College, Salins, County Kildare, Ireland, Europe, the world, the universe. The Many Voices of Stephen Dedalus from Rough Magic Theatre Company's forthcoming production. Well, I'm joined in studio by the creator of that show, playwright and actor Arthur O'Reardon, and by Dr. Katrina Kirby, lecturer in English at IADT in Dunleary. You're both welcome to the show. Thanks, Thanks very much. much. Katrina, we'll start with you. Joyce, the man, the myth, he can almost seem intimidating. Is the portrait of the artist an easy way into Joyce? Oh, an easy way into Joyce. Um, it's a good word, intimidating. People are often, well, they, they often express intimidation about Joyce. But I think I probably read Portrait of an Artist when I was at first about 16. Snap. Snap, really. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know uh, if I got it or if any book can ever really be got in any sense of the word. But it really... It struck me on a lot of different levels. Um, it's the story of, of a young boy who grows into uh, young manhood, um, Stephen Daedalus. And in large parts, it's a story of formation. It's, 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 a, it's how he has come to be the kind of man he is, more particularly how he has come to be the kind of artist mm. he grows into being. And briefly, can you tell us what it's about, Katrina? Because we know the names, but many people actually haven't read the book yet. Plots are always a difficult one with Joyce. <laughs> um, Portrait of an Artist is the story of uh, young Stephen Daedalus as he grows from a boy to a young man. And during the course of this book, uh, we see him go to school, firstly to Clangos, then to Belvedere, then to UCD. At the same time, he's questioning his religious beliefs. He's questioning where he fits in society. And probably most importantly, he's, he's trying to imagine himself as the artist he eventually hopes to be. Arthur, how important is Joyce's life in this work? Does that matter? Is Stephen James is James Stephen? Oh, that's a very big, very tricky question. I don't think we can ever fully equate the two. Though Stephen, of course, shares 
great deal of Joyce's biographical detail, he's still very much a literary creation. Does he stand as his own man in, in, in a sense? Is he away from Joyce enough? That's a tricky question because, because we don't know what Joyce was like as a child. So it's very hard not to impute Joyce's emotions, Joyce's thoughts on, on Stephen. He's very much a literary creation who happens to share biographical detail with Joyce. I, I think of it that way. It's a slippery and ambiguous relationship between these two. Katrina, have you anything to add on that? It is slippery and ambiguous, isn't it? And I think actually that kind of slippage is really interesting because um, at times Joyce is, is deliberately pointing toward the fictional aspects of the text and at times he's almost trapping the reader into an idea of biography so that we might read into those gaps. And it's important for the, for the listener to note like Joyce went to went to similar schools. He did, he went uh, to similar uh, schools. His father, yeah. his father uh, had a raconteur sort of a relationship. His father, yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's one can't help but read the book and think, well, this is James's life. That's a very good way of putting it, can't help but. Yeah, and I think yeah. that quite often with all of these clues, like like place names and like very explicit similar details between the biographical uh, Joyce and the fictional Stephen, that it is almost a can't help but read into um, the, all of the commonalities they have. But as, as Arthur pointed out, it is very explicitly fictional as well. I mean, the opening lines, once upon a time, is, is your first and clearest indication that this is explicitly a, a literary fictional enterprise. We're in the land of fiction. Well, as we've been hearing, Stephen Daedalus is the main character in the story and indeed the portrait follows him for the first 18 years of his life. We caught up with Ronan Phelan, director of Rough Magic, to give us a picture of who Stephen really is. The story of Portrait of the Arts as a Young Man is a kind of a universal story about the struggle of an individual to try and find meaning and purpose for their life. Stephen, when we first meet him, is quite a shy boy, bookish, and not necessarily drawn towards the rough and tumble of young male playing and bonding. He was sitting in the midst of a children's party at Harold's Cross. His silent, watchful manner had grown upon him, and he took little part in the games. The children, wearing the spoils of their crackers, danced and romped noisily, and though he tried to share their merriment, he felt himself a gloomy figure amid the gay cocked hats and sunbonnets. He asked questions about the most basic things. What is the universe? Where am I from? Which lead him on through the book to the big existential questions. Why am I here? What is the purpose of my life? What am I going to do with myself? How do I contribute? Should I contribute? I wish I had read it when I was 22 or younger or 17. What I really relate to in the book, what I think it captures very well, is how personal and kinetic the wrestle feels when you're a teenager or, or approaching early adulthood to try and discover who and what you are all of I, I relate very much to Stephen's petulance to his anger to his resentment at being given an answer without having had the opportunity to interrogate the question and I suppose what I admire in him is that he's not afraid to be isolated He's not afraid to detach himself from people. He believes that pursuing the questions, the big questions of his life, 
is worth the pain of loneliness. And it's his bravery in pursuing those questions that makes him a hero. I will tell you what I will do and what I will not do. I will not serve that in which I no longer believe, whether it calls itself my home, my fatherland or my church. And I will try to express myself in some mode of life or art as freely as I can and as wholly as I can, using for my defence the only arms I allow myself to use, silence, exile and cunning. Arthur, we got a good insight into Stephen there and how much of a thinker he is. Uh, but really, he's an introvert. So how much, uh, how do you bring an introvert to the stage and to life? Okay. Um, yeah, certainly until the final chapter and the final section in the play, Stephen is a very quiet chap, but his, his inner life is in literary, linguistic, technicolour. So one of the first decisions I made in, in doing the adaptation was that there would have to be some sort of narrator. And um, then before I set finger to keyboard, I had this notion that there would be always on stage, there would be Stephen and a narrator, but that once Stephen reached the next stage of his life, that that narrator would then become Stephen, would take over the role of Stephen and another narrator would appear and this other narrator would in turn become Stephen eventually. So we had a sort of a a relay of Joyce's and Stephen's. Um, I felt it was a way to in some way address and manifest on stage this this tricky relationship between Joyce and Stephen. And also the the play is a gender blind casting. So how did you uh, how did you do that? And and how does it work? Well, by casting four male actors and four female. Once you get used to the idea, you forget the gender very quickly. Certainly watching it in rehearsals, it gave me pause when I when I first heard, but um it's it's just something that I feel the audience, once they get this, that there's a, a, a... Well, for a start, it's a cast of eight. So obviously everybody's doubling roles and tripling roles throughout. So then their gender becomes far less of an issue. And mind you, um, you know, Stephen's father uh, appearing in the book does the father no favours either. No, that's true. <laughs> As the most garrulous character in the book. I, I, it's, I find him a fascinating character because he's sort of... Um, He's almost like someone from another novel altogether. He could be one of one of Dickens's feckless parents, and uh, he's 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 very visual character, isn't yeah, he? He's probably yeah. and he's probably the most visual character, yeah. and he seems to bring the music to yeah, the, the book. Yeah. He's as an well. Edwardian figure in in the last Edwardian novel. Really. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's no doubt that the portrait is a very masculine book. Stephen's world of boarding school at Clongos and Belvedere is a very male one. So how are women portrayed in the book? How does Joyce view women and how does his views sit with us now? Well, Katie O'Kelly is an actor and writer who's brought many of the women from Joyce's Dubliners to the stage in her play Dubliners Women. She spoke to us about the portrayal of women in his books and in particular a portrait of the artist. Joyce is one of those people who has an innate ability to create women um, and to vocalise their inner narratives very articulately despite not being particularly nice to the women in his life. I mean, he had this awful guilt for his the rest of his life uh, about his mother because on her deathbed, he refused to kneel and pray with her. And I think that that has very much fed into a lot of the kind of mother characters in his texts, su- such as Portrait. I must try and get into town tomorrow in time for High Mass in Marlborough Street. Tomorrow's a great feast day in the church. 
Why? The ascension of our Lord. And why is that a great feast day? On that day he showed himself divine. He ascended into heaven. Where did he go off? Mount Olivet. Head first. Stephen! I'm afraid you have lost your faith. I'm afraid so too. He was also able to write quite strong women. I mean, Dante is based on his aunt, who's called Dante as well. And she's this amazing, belligerent Catholic zealot. But I think she really encapsulates as well the complexities of the culture of the time because she talks a lot about the Land League and class struggle, as well as, I suppose, kind of the very much being totally uh, on the side of Catholicism and following the, the doctrines of, uh, of the Catholic Church. And I just think she's an amazing character, so vocal and well able to stand up for herself. Uh, Arthur, Katrina, what do you think of uh, those views expressed there? Uh, Stephen's mother, hardly hear her speak at all. Similarly, Emma is his muse throughout his childhood and teenage years. You barely hear her, say, her saying anything and that, that it's as if Stephen puts her up on a pedestal where she's better off not being heard. Uh, it was an interesting extract there because... Um, she also mentioned that um, Joyce is, is well regarded for his portrayals of women. And of course, Molly Bloom from Ulysses is one of one of the most famous literary creations. And and her interiority is, is still one of the significant pieces of, of fiction. Oh, I absolutely agree. Uh, strangely, in Stephen Hero, which was a sort of an earlier draft of portrait, both Emma and Stephen's mother get a little bit more to say. And so I, I, I did insert a couple of snatches of dialogue from, from Stephen Hero. It strikes me, is this something that Joyce would have approved of himself, do you think? I hope so. I don't know if Joyce would have approved or disapproved <laughs> of that, to be honest with you. I feel like he'd have loved it. <laughs> I feel like he had a reason for cutting them out in the first place. Well, that's just it. I mean, it's, it is a little bit of hand-holding that, that we've become very used to. And, and to be honest with you, when I first encountered Portrait myself, it was the first time I really didn't have that kind of narrative explicit direction. And I found myself a little bit at sea in some of the passages. Uh, regarding women... They're largely very shadowy figures in the text. It starts off with, we'll say, Stephen's mother who's veiled and crying and we only really get to her through a sense of smell at the start. Mm. Whereas, we'll say, Stephen's father is explicitly and visually framed right up front, right at the very start of the chapter. Probably one of the more famous passages is the bird girl on the strand and young Stephen uh, looks at her at the distance and she... Well, the language he uses actually specifically evokes uh, a fellow called Walter Pater who wrote about the Mona Lisa in the 19th century. And this famous criticism spoke about how a mysterious and evocative and and unknowable um, the Mona Lisa was. And I suppose that kind of rhetoric is used, that kind of language was, was reused, probably ironically, by Joyce to describe this young woman uh, on the beach and, and all of the ways you can impose a story on a woman that you've never seen. So a complex and interesting relationship there. Next, we're going to listen to a very short scene from Rough Magic rehearsing their play and it's introduced to us by director Ronan Phelan. This scene occurs just after Stephen has been visiting prostitutes in the Monto. Uh, We find him in school when another boy is being given out to and he finds that his mind keeps wandering back to his nighttime walks and the sinful activities that he's been indulging in. 
Place your finger for a moment in the flame of a candle and you will feel the pain of fire. The sulfurous brimstone in hell is specially designed to burn forever and forever with unspeakable fury. I pray fervently that not a single soul of those who are in this chapel today may be found among those miserable beings. That not one of us may ever hear ringing in his ears the awful sentence of rejection. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels. Give me a kiss. The raging fires of hell there. Religion is a huge part of the book and maybe a part that might seem a little strange uh, to the modern reader. The hold of the church over Stephen and his schoolmates is incredible. Katrina, is Stephen's rebellion from faith something that was controversial at the time? It certainly was uh, one of the reasons why the book was criticised when it was first received. But even even that passage alone, hellfire and brimstone, you can see that it's it's framed by a little bit of irony. I, I like to hear my parents and, and formerly my grandparents describe what sermons used to be like back in the day when... <laughs> Fire and hell. So his big rebellion is against the church. Yes, one of the significant institutions he does rebel against in this text is religion. And one of the most famous phrases he uses in the in the in the book itself is that he will not serve non servium, which echoes, we'll say, Lucifer's um, rejection of of God. Funny, um, when I read the book in my teens, it was the late seventies, and because portrait had, in the meantime, influenced so many Irish coming of age novels. Reaching the hellfire bit, I just kind of thought, oh, not this again. <laughs> that it had become a, a staple of, of, of uh, Irish literature and, and, and verging on cliche, even though Joyce did it first and best. It felt like, a OK, we've got to swallow this hole and, and move on. And it's odd that the church that Joyce rebelled against, or, or, or I beg your pardon, that Stephen rebelled against. Maybe not a Freudian slip at all there. <laughs> It wasn't, you know, uh, certainly as far as he knew, it wasn't a viper's nest of, of child abusers or anything. It was um, it, it was something that was very tempting, very attractive life to, to join the Jesuits. And, and it was possibly a, a quite a, a, a tough decision. life almost, too, yeah, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. I do think that the church doesn't come in for as much of a knocking as, as, as say, often people perceive it yeah, to be in, yeah, in the book yeah. um, that the, the Jesuits the, the order that Stephen largely res- um, is engaged with during the, the novel that the Jesuits were in large part offering him a career a yeah. very good career yeah. you know we've talked about it on the, on the Irish level but in the international level was this rebellion like was it influential Katrina to say The Catcher in the Rye or The Country Girls uh, those great books of coming of age did it influence perhaps J.D. Salinger it was and is probably still the most significant Kunstler roman, um, which is the artist version of the Buildings roman. And as such, I, I think yeah, you can definitely count Catcher in the Rye uh, along those same lines. Yes, Salinger was influenced at least in part by this book. But if Joyce were alive today, what would he be writing about? Uh, here's writer and actor Katie O'Kelly again. In today's world, I think Joyce, if he was still 
here now. I think he'd be very much interested in what's going on in the in the housing crisis because his father moved him 11 times, moved house 11 times. He started off in Bray in this beautiful house overlooking the bay and his father eventually kind of demoted the family down and down and down until they were living basically in the tenement style conditions in the north inner city, which we've seen a return to recently with you know slum landlords taking over properties. And I think that that is something that he would have felt very strongly about because his family suffered that. Actually, there's a great scene in a portrait of the artist where he, Stephen Dedalus, comes in and sees his family all sitting around the table and there's no fire in the hearth and they're all drinking out of jam pots rather than glasses because it's just a perfect encapsulation of that, of the poverty which Joyce really felt he escaped but his family were left in that particularly his sisters who I suppose the most famous one would be Poppy Poppy Joyce who he later turned into Eveline I suppose not, not I don't know how much good it did her but he escaped and she was stuck left minding the family and trying to hold the place together in his absence Katrina Arthur um, um that took the words out of my mouth um I, I think in a sense Property has has replaced the church and possibly nationalism as the the national shibboleth now and and um, and housing and and possibly direct provision also because Joyce's creation of the Jew Leopold Bloom in Ulysses yeah that that by the time Ulysses comes around Joyce has a much takes a much harsher view on nationalism and the nationalist's attitude to outsiders. Katrina, what do you think? What would he be writing about today? Would, is property, would that be the burning issue for him, the homelessness crisis? It's funny, I, I think I start most lectures every year uh, on portrait with a, an anecdote about the Martello Tower where he stayed, I think it was with Gogarty. Yeah. And I think he eventually moved out. Well, he was he was living there largely at... With at, his Black Panther. With <laughs> <laughs> largely at, at, at Gogarty's largesse. And I think Joyce eventually moved out because because Gogarty shot at him over his bed. Because I start with that anecdote, it's it's becoming increasingly uh, obvious to me the parallels between then and now and how difficult it was and is to to get housing. And I'm I'm in, I'm also aware of of how much more difficult it is for my students. Mm to get housing whilst they're reading this kind of book. Seeing as we talked about religion, what would he have made about the papal visit recently? Oh, would he have rejoiced in the small I think he would or? have loved the spectacle of it. I mean, uh, we had uh, Edward uh, visiting during Ulysses and I think pomp and ceremony, no matter how ironically Joyce portrays it, I think he has a certain fondness mm. for that kind of thing. As for what the Pope represents, well, he did skewer religion in the text, uh, again, howsoever, ironically or lightly. And so I suspect he would have had uh, some asides about the papal visit. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's fun. I mean, the snares that he talks about evading um, family, church and, uh, and nation are the things that fascinated him for the rest of his life. And uh, he certainly wouldn't have ignored the Pope's visit, I think. He's setting up the groundwork for his, for Ulysses in, in this, of course. And yeah. the problems he's, he's raising in, in portrait are, are problems we'll encounter again in, in Ulysses. That's where we're going to have to leave it this evening. We could keep talking about James Joyce. Uh, we could keep talking about Stephen Daedalus. But our thanks to Dr. Katrina Kirby, Arthur Reardon, Katie O'Kelly and our reader Nick McGinley and to everyone at Rough Magic. Their production of a portrait of the artist as a young man runs at the Pavilion Theatre in Dunleary as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival until October 7th and will then tour nationwide. 
We're going to go out on a short reading from the book with Stephen taking a stroll around Dublin's famous Monto. Thanks to producer Regan Hutchins and to you for listening. The whores would be just coming out of their houses, making ready for the night, yawning lazily after their sleep and settling the hairpins in their clusters of hair. He would pass by them, calmly waiting for a sudden movement of his own will or a sudden call to his sin-loving soul from their soft, perfumed flesh. <laughs> 